Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. I didn't in newspapers, okay? Teenage girls are the future. Thank you. Make installations. We demand... A recount. So I'm not dead yet. I was surprised to read that you started early in life as a Republican who wanted to go into business. I was actually shocked, uh, uh, which it seems quite a long way off from the path you pursued. Can you talk a bit about how your early political views and ambitions were formed and maybe how they changed? Yeah, so I love my dad. And my dad um, uh, was a businessman. And he's uh, he was a right-wing Republican, um, but more a libertarian. That's what I thought of myself as, a libertarian um, and so I actually went to the Warden uh, um, School at, at the University of Pennsylvania, like our president. Um, Home of and, ENIAC uh, also. Yeah, uh, ENIAC. Yeah. Uh, I really um, took a lot of courses in that building. Um, and uh, But, you know, I obviously moved. And I moved um, not so much that I am no longer libertarian. I think of myself still as libertarian. But I've you know, came to recognize as I grew up the essential role that equality had in our society to set the conditions and the opportunities for people to flourish uh, and for liberty to flourish. And so that began to dominate many of the political questions that were important to me, and that's uh, what kind of led me to where I am now. Is that a change that took place when you were at Penn or in college or later on? I guess I really shifted. Um, I, w- I went to Penn, and then I um, uh, I was trying to escape law school, so I went to um, Cambridge, England, uh, and studied philosophy. And it was and it was there I think that I really um, began to think of the world differently, or at least I began to see the relevance and importance of uh, equality. Um, and so when I came back to law school, um, I was already reformed, but um, but uh, I. I guess I hadn't come out of the closet yet to my family. <laughs> it was a difficult. It was a difficult. How did they take them. it? It was tough. Um, you know, my father. Uh, we had lots of fights for many years. Uh, I think the idea that I became a teacher was harder for him because I, you know, he used to he used to say those who can do and those who can't teach. Um, so we had a lot of things to work through. Um, but uh, I think in the end he's okay with both both decisions. Did he was is is he still with us? Did, was he able to see you run for president? Yeah, 
Uh, he was he was one of my most helpful critics, but he certainly was a critic. So you're in school during this time. It's like we're in the 80s here, right? Yeah. Ish. Talk to me a little bit about what the role of computers are playing in your life and just generally at this time. I touched on ENIAC because I also uh, went to Penn, so I'm you know and had an experience there where I had an Ethernet connection in my dorm room in like the year the Mosaic browser came out, and so that was really important for me. Um, how what was the role of computers in your in your sort of formative years there? Well, I was obsessed with computers ever since high school. But high school, I graduated in 1979 from high school. So we had a dial-up connection to a mainframe at Bucknell University. I grew up in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, we're programming in Fortran. Uh, and, um, and then I got one of the first IBM PCs and became obsessed about um, programming. But in the first first of the PC only had basic, even, you know, not even a compiled basic. Um, but at the University of Pennsylvania, I also uh, was working at Wharton Econometrics, which was Larry Klein, who was a Nobel Prize winner um, in economics, um, Larry Klein's forecasting firm, you know, that built these huge models of the um, uh, American economy and the world economy and economies around the world. Um, and uh, Worked extensively there, doing a lot of computer stuff. Like we built, I built a little PC version of a fifty equation uh, model um, that you know people could carry around and run a mini growth model on their own computers. Um, but in those days, you know, those machines were punch card machines, right. um, and it was time sharing. So you you know have a stack, you know, maybe a, a foot deep of punch cards, and you dump it in the punch card reader. Um, and it would run, and it would be a $30,000 bill that would be charged for the calculation that was just made. And, of course, if you, you know, screwed up and you put the wrong punch card in or in the wrong order, it was still a $10,000 bill just for the mistake. Right. Um, so it was, it was a pretty formidable kind of um, education. And did that get you thinking specifically about uh, the law and code and the way that sort of uh, computers would and, and eventually, you know, the Internet and, and all these things would eventually affect the law. Was that when you went into the law, were you thinking that that was a field you would pursue? No. 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 I mean, you know, so I, uh, I kept my interest in, in uh, you know, obsession with technology as I went to um, first study philosophy and then to study law. Um, and so it was but it was a hobby. It wasn't it wasn't the way I was looking at the world. But um, I got obsessed with the idea of teaching or thinking about it um, because I became convinced that people didn't know their politics in cyberspace. They didn't know, you know, a conservative didn't know what a conservative should do, and a liberal didn't know what a liberal should do. Um, when you talked about, you know, behavior or activity in cyberspace, and and um, and so I thought, wow, this would be a really wonderful context to think about legal questions because people don't know what their biases are. They don't know what their prejudices are. And so they could actually think about them. They wouldn't um, be just repeating what they know they're supposed to think because they're a liberal or a conservative. So that's what really got me into the teaching. And I taught you know, some of the first law of cyberspace classes. The first one was at Yale, then at Chicago, then at Harvard. Um, um, and but those were really, you know, experiences of bringing people into this world and getting them to reflect on, you know, what made that world tick and what made it possible for behavior to uh, to be regulated or um, or not in that space. And that that was sort of one of the things that was really exciting about that time, 
uh, was that in online spaces, there were a lot of places and movements even where you had liberals and conservatives in the real world, but mixing even, I think, like EFF, uh, you know, was, was a place where you had people of different political viewpoints, but coming together uh, specifically, you know, to to work on the law as it relates to, you know, uh, digital, I guess. Right. I mean, I was I was on the board of EFF and, you know, John Perry Barlow, um, John Gilmore. So Barlow is a big libertarian. John yeah. Gilmore is a big libertarian. Mitch Caper was more of a traditional Democrat. Um, um, but they thought that they had common purpose in defending the liberty of cyberspace. Um, and they did. But as the policies evolved, you, know, you began to see a lot of tensions here. So I remember on the board, you know, arguing with John Gilmore about whether EFF should support network neutrality. It seemed to me an easy question, but for a libertarian, it was a hard question. And um, I think that, you know, that, that, that struggle continues. People who listen to our podcast and certainly our community is familiar with your work at uh, Creative Commons uh, around copyright issues. Is that where you started getting really in- interested in how the net would affect copyright and the importance of how those rules were affecting creativity and just culture in general? Well, when I first started teaching the law of cyberspace, um, I remember this class in particular at Yale where it struck me to frame that question in terms of the way the technology or the code was itself a kind of law. And once you think about it like that, once you recognize that the code, the technology, um, operates like a kind of law, you can think about the way it happens to support the law or the way it um, conflicts with the law. So, you know, if you believe in free speech, the original architecture of the Internet supported free speech because it made it, you know, trivially easy to be able to speak however you wanted. It was very difficult to regulate or restrict you. So that's a way in which the architecture was um, complementing the value of free speech. In the context of copyright, though, um, it was int- what was interesting to me was the way the architecture um, uh, could conflict with the value of copyright, so um, or the values behind copyright. So you know, there was a big fight originally about how to um, control using uh, technology uh, um, the distribution of copyrighted material, or to control the ability to access or use it using technology. And so if you think, well, the law of copyright has certain exceptions built into it, like the law of fair use, or fair use is an exception, then the technology could conflict with that principle. And so the technology would undermine the value of fair use or could undermine the value of fair use. So that, that was what you know, got me interested in copyright. It was just that kind of intellectual struggle. And, but the more I got into it, the more I felt like a lawyer with a guilty conscience because I saw the way the law was being deployed in the context of copyright to really undermine the potential of the internet to support all sorts of new forms of creativity and access to knowledge. And, and so that intuition, that recognition, um, led me to take on some pretty important, you know, some pretty big cases initially. And one of them went to the Supreme Court challenging the extension of copyright, retroactive extension of copyright. And that case, uh, the, the lead plaintiff a was a man named Eric Eldred. And, and for the argument in the case, Eric said to me, you know, I don't think you're going to win. Um, it's been great. We've gotten this far. But I don't want this to just, you know, end up as a lost Supreme Court case. I want you to promise me that regardless of what happens, you will support um, the development of a, uh, a kind of foundation to support the public domain. Um, what was the case I'm, about before you tell us about the... 
The, well, this was the, the, the you know, in 1998, there was a Congress passed the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, and that extended the term of existing copyrights by 20 years. Um, uh, and, uh, and you know, the, the thing about copyright is it's, you know, it's a pretty good system for creating incentives. But the thing about incentives is that they are only prospective. You know, not, not even the United States Congress can get George Gershwin to do anything more. So it made no sense from the perspective of copyright law to be extending the term of existing copyrights. It was just a power grab by, you know, uh, the Disneys of the world to, um, to get more money for work that's already been created. So we thought we could challenge it and get the court to apply the language of the Constitution that said that copyright terms are supposed to be for a, quote, limited time. Um, and if you took that seriously, you would say once you have the limits, you can't extend it. Um, right. Um, it's not and, a disincentive uh, anymore. You're not disincentivizing yeah. George Gershwin at that point because right. he's already right. made it. Right. He's already made it. Um, and, um, and when we brought the case, we actually had a brief signed by 13 economists, including five Nobel Prize winners, including um, Milton Friedman, who said that he would only sign the brief if the word no-brainer was somewhere in the brief. So obvious <laughs> was it that it couldn't make sense to extend the term of existing copyright. So we thought we had the arguments on our side. We thought we had the historical precedent on our side. We thought it made perfect sense. The court disagreed with us. Seven to two, we lost. And once we lost, I, I had this obligation to Eric <laughs> Eldred to build this foundation. So that's what led us to push to develop uh, Creative Commons. And, and there were a couple of us, including Aaron Swartz and um, uh, Lisa Rain and uh, Glenn Brown and uh, Molly Van Howling, all worked to pull this together. And the board, um, uh, which included some extraordinary you know, people, Hal Abelson from MIT, Jamie Boyle from Duke, um, all, you know, helped us seed this as a way to help express and build and spread the commons. And that's what gave us Creative Commons. And I know you, I know this isn't a field that you're, you're actively working on anymore, but how preventative is the sort of lack of innovation in overall cal copyright law? I mean, I don't, I don't think much has been changed. Uh, well, there's in, certain, in, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's certain places that there's been real progress. Um, so I think judges have become really sensitive to the importance of fair use. And we've seen a lot of really great victories where the courts have interpreted copyright law to protect a very strong fair use. Um, at the same time, um, the concern of many, and this was one of the strongest concerns behind the Eldred case, to uh, make sure that we had access to our past um, uh, and we could preserve and and archive and spread and share our past um, is still a really significant problem. I mean, it's still the case that, you know, you've got copyrights now that up to 95 years old, and there's all sorts of material that you just legally can't do anything with, uh, and nobody is trying to make any real progress to get us to a place that you could even identify who the rights owners are, rights holders are. You know, we've got all this stuff locked up and nobody even knows who has the keys. Um, um, so that problem is still quite significant. Uh, and still, I think there's enough of a fear around litigation that it's channeling businesses to be more conservative than they otherwise would be. Uh, and you know, I've seen um, certain people, you know, like Sean Parker, who, you know, was one of the founders of Napster, um, and one of the original investors in Facebook. So he's quite successful. But Sean Parker. At the beginning of this whole fight, was um, was very strongly supportive of reforming copyright law to make it more 
liberal. Right. Uh, and, uh, um, but now that he's on the Spotify board uh, and Spotify, you know, has succeeded in navigating these incredibly complicated laws around the world, uh, he's not so eager to see the law changed because if you change the law, you create more competitors for Spotify. Right. Um, so, you know, I think people quickly become invested in their own business model and the law that supports it. And uh, and so we haven't seen, I think, a lot of progress in reforming law since. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the just general opacity around companies and organizations not necessarily knowing what will happen if they do X is is a huge issue. I can we can. I can tell you, you know, at the Webby's, we had a, this is sort of a small example, but we had a GIF of the year, you know, award. And so in order to do that, we wanted to choose the five GIFs and put them up on a site so that the world could come vote on them. But people were very, very concerned about it because all of these GIFs that are made that are really cool and creative inevitably use, you know, other people's works. I mean, they sure. are remixes at large. So uh, we we did it, but I think it was like essentially unsupported by sponsorship because, you know, there was no company that was willing to even be associated with something that might have copyright issues. Yeah. And, um, and know, some people that are brave. Yeah. <laughs> some people are brave and some people turn out to be stupid because they're brave. And, you know, it's a real problem. Um, you recently gave a talk in Berlin where you compared the state of what we know, and I say that as in quotes, as a society in 2017 to what we know, what we knew in the 19th century. You sort of break it up into a, what we know versus what we want. Can you explain those concepts and how you think they inform the state of our democracy today? Sure. Um, I'm glad I have more than 140 characters because it's it's not it's not obvious immediately. You know, the point I was trying to make was. Um, if you think about the 19th century, it's a time when there are thousands of news sources, um, journals and newspapers, and there's no broadcasting. You know, there's no radio, there's no television. Um, so if you think, what does the public know? The public, you know, knows a very di uh, diverse set of things. And, um, and it's very partisan and polarized. I mean, the press is an extremely partisan entity much like Fox News uh, in, pay, in print. Um, and part of the reason for that is that the press was used to rally people to vote for one party or another. So in, in a certain way, you could say the 19th century was a time when um, people knew not the same thing but many different things, and the press was very partisan. Um, but the thing about that time is that we actually didn't know much about what the people knew because there was no such technology as polling or anything like that. Uh, all we could do is speculate with what, about what the people knew, and so that meant that most people didn't care much about what ordinary people knew because it was just unknowable. Then you come to the 20th century and two technologies change. First, there's broadcasting, which makes it possible for wide swaths of society to be exposed to the same ideas at the same time. Um, and by the middle part of the 20th century, basically everybody's focusing every day on three television shows, three, you know, network news shows that's, you know, right down the middle telling the same sort of facts uh, and the public basically all coming to understand these facts. So in one sense, you have a public that's much more unified in its understanding of at least important what's deemed to be important issues. Um, lots of issues aren't deemed to be important even though they were like sexism or racism or poverty. But for the mainstream issues that want to be covered in the news, most people know about it. And the second big technological change is that you get polling. We get to understand what the people actually know or actually believe. And over the course of the 20th century, 
that view of what the people know and what they believe becomes really significant, normatively significant. Um, uh, it's, you know, an important question. What is the public opinion uh, about whether we should go to war or what should we do about uh, the environment and so forth? So there's a shared, uh, there's a shared story, whether or not right. that story is wide enough and inclusive enough is a different discussion, but there's a shared story there. And people in power have some access and ability to actually understand what people think about that story. Exactly, exactly. But then we get to the 21st century. And in many ways, the 21st century is like the 19th century. You know, broadcasting is, is decimated. We all now have 50,000 different sources that we look at. We can't, we don't all see the same things. We don't all have a shared understanding of what the world, what's going on in the world. Um, for many kinds of culture, this is, you know, the best possible time. You know, uh, television uh, is uh, in, the 19, in the 20th century is embarrassing compared to television today. You know, the diversity and the, and the uh, richness um, is really astonishing. Um, but, the, but the problem is uh, that because we don't all have a shared understanding of what the facts are, um, we have wildly divergent opinions about, you know, what should be happening in the world. Um, and, and the consequence of that is this, you know, really pronounced polarization that shows itself in all sorts of contexts um, and is inflamed by technologies like, um, you know, Facebook and, and the other social media sites that, that uh, exacerbate that. Which, which um, are so, actually using extremely, I mean, the sophisticated computing power that the world has never seen to specifically help people find and talk to people who are clicking on things that are exactly like what they've been clicking on yeah. to some extent. Um, yeah, and you could describe that in two different ways. One way to describe it is technology is making it extremely easy for us to get what we want, um, which makes it sound fine. But the other way of putting that is that technology is making it extremely easy to get what we want, and what we want is really not necessarily the truth or justice or the American way, right? So it, uh, it's helping these uh, communities to channel in ways that, um, um, that would never have been possible if they were being directed by an editor or anything else like that. Um, so, but the point is we've got this diverse, diffuse culture, public, which does not have the same view of the facts, doesn't have the same view of what the issues are, and so is radically different in its understandings of issues of public import. But the way in which the 21st century is not like the 19th century is we still have polling. <laughs> we still have the ability to kind of know what the public knows or doesn't know. And, uh, and it's still normatively significant. You know, it's still important if the public thinks we should go to war in Iraq. Um, uh, even though you know the public doesn't actually know the underlying facts that would lead one way or another. Um, but still, you know, in a democracy, you can't question what the people want. Um, and so we're in this weird place where... We, the people, are represented in an extremely embarrassing way because we don't actually know the stuff we're talking about, even if we could, if we you know, had a chance to focus on it. And the democracy feels like it has to follow what we, the people, believe, represented in this really embarrassing way. Um, yet, of course, that means we are doing things or would do things that turn out not to be in our interest or in the interest of the nation as a whole. But, there, I mean, there's also some responsibility on not just the technology, but also the leaders who are then following the polling, right? Because to some extent, many of them know that a lot of the people that they're polling and getting insights from don't actually know the issues, and they're not necessarily standing up and trying to explain the issues or tell them why that view is incorrect, or they're sort of taking advantage on both parties, on both sides, 
taking advantage of that to further their, you know, further their cause, correct? It's that's true, but I'm not sure um how strongly one should be critical here hmm. because what can you do? I mean, I remember when you know, in 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 I was spending a lot of time in cable news uh um uh, offices in uh, the early fall of 2015. Um and Donald Trump was everywhere, 24-7. And I would talk to these editors, and I would be like, what do you think? And they were, oh, we think this is terrible. He's on television all the time. It's just the worst. And I would say, well, why don't you take him off? <laughs> like, why are you, you're the ones that are putting him on. And they would say, well, we can't take him off. If we take him off, we'll get killed in the market. The ratings would die. So we've got to keep him on. So in one sense, you could say, look, you're responsible but in other sense, you say, well, they're responsible in an extremely competitive market where any decision not to do what the public is demanding is punished severely. Same thing in politics. Yeah, you could say to a politician, don't do what you know the public wants you to do because you know the public doesn't know. Or you could say, look, the politician is just being a politician if he's responding to the people. And we could hope for statesmen. But, hmm. but in fact, what we get is politicians. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Whose responsibility is it? What do we do? Because I, mean, I think everybody can identify with the overall filter bubble issue and, you know, that we we naturally just sort of follow stories and read press of stuff that we agree with. And even if you really push yourself, you're really responsible media consumer out there, you push yourself to populate your Twitter feed with other viewpoints and all that. I mean, that takes a lot of work. Uh, so, you know, and a lot of these technologies deliver things to people that, like, as you were saying, are really great. Like, it helps them keep better connected with their college roommate or their grandmother or all these things which are really wonderful but there's a obviously a huge flaw here do you think it's the tech companies that need to do a better job is it po politicians the first thing to recognize is this is an extraordinarily difficult problem there is no easy answer here um there's not even a if there were an easy answer it probably wouldn't even be constitutional so there just is no simple solution to this and as I've thought about it, and I spent the last year writing about it, um, uh, you know, I increasingly think that the the thing we need to do is to just recognize um, uh, how ridiculous it is that we, the people, get represented in such a stupid way, right? So, you know, if you think about citizenship, citizenship is a public office, just like being president is a public office. We all have an obligation to be good citizens. But the funny, the thing about uh, citizenship as a public office is that 
we are treated with the least respect of all the other public officers, right? So the president, before the president says anything, like put this president aside maybe, but ordinarily the president, before the president says anything, has an enormous opportunity to understand what's going on, understand the facts, like be told by support, like here's what would happen if you do this and this is what happens if you do that, and gets a chance to reflect on it and then gets a chance to speak. And we hear the president speak and we say he or she is, um, is smart or not. Um, Supreme Court justices are very smart people, but nobody expects them to decide a case without having all the information before them and given a chance to read it and deliberate about it and, and write some drafts of their opinions before those opinions become public. Members of Congress, when they testify in, a, in another committee meeting, they've been informed and briefed and they understand the information. All of these public officers, when they present themselves to the public, present their best face to the public, and we see their best face. But when you turn to citizens and you, you know, read a public opinion poll, which is conducted by Gallup calling up 2,000 people, you know, getting them out of the shower or just before they're taking the kids to school and, um, you know, asking them questions that they have no reason to believe they know the answers to or even have an informed opinion about and then report that back as what we the people believe, it's embarrassing and it's outrageous that we are allowed to be embarrassed in that way. Um, you know, I'm a deep believer in the capacity of ordinary uh, citizens, properly informed with a chance to deliberate, to resolve every single important public policy issue in a way that I think would be you know, meaningful and, and valuable. But um, that is very different from what we see represented and what we see driving public policy decisions when you just ask the people uh, in the way that we typically ask the people um, uh, what their views are on a million things. Now, so. Even given all of that, I mean, even if that's true, and I know there's a lot of people can push back on different parts of what I've just said, but even if that's true, it doesn't offer an obvious answer. You know, maybe we need to increase the number of opportunities for reflective, informed publics to express themselves. And, you know, maybe we see the public opinion poll shows America as idiots, but a poll where, you know, people have a chance to learn and deliberate and, and think about it shows that they're not idiots. But you're not going to ban public opinion polls. You're not going to ban, um, you know, Fox News or MSNBC responding to you know, uh, uh, ignorant attitudes of their audience. You just, you know, none of that is regulable. Um, and so we've got, in some sense, a, kind of been cornered by this technology that renders us uh, stupid, makes us seem stupid, even though I think we have the potential to be as good or better than most of our elected officials on these questions. And this really, in a way, ties into a new initiative you have called Equal Votes, One Person, One Vote. I want you to tell me about that a bit. Well, I mean, the problem I've been working on for the last decade, since uh, my friend Aaron Swartz sort of twisted my arm and said, why are you wasting your time on the internet? Um, you ought to be worrying about democracy. Um, but the problem I've been working on since then is, like, how do we get uh, a representative democracy that... Uh, that you know, has a reason to respond to all of us, not just to the funders of campaigns, for example. And, um, and as I've worked on this and thought about this uh, for a decade, I've, I've you know, thought that the best way to see what's wrong with our system right now is that it denies us the most basic promise of a representative democracy, which is that all citizens have equal political power or equal voice in their democracy. Um, that's not to say that they all have the same money 
It's not to say they all have the same opportunity. It's not to say they all have the same results. It's not equality of all the other equalities you want to fight about. It's the basic first equality in a republic, and that's the equality of political uh, power. Um, and our system denies us that equality in a hundred ways. It denies it, you know, when you've got a system for funding congressional campaigns where candidates spend 30 to 70 percent of their time raising money from 60,000 Americans. Um, it denies it in uh, the way districts get gerrymandered. So if you happen to be a Republican in uh, Massachusetts, you know you never matter to your congressperson right. because your vote could never matter to the ultimate decision in, in uh, the election. It, it, it's denied in the way that some people um, find it very difficult to vote because they happen to be a Democrat in a Republican state and they have these you know, crazy uh, voter ID restrictions or they don't support the voting machines in your district. And in the most grotesque way or most obvious way to most people, it's denied in the way we elect our president. You know, um, my vote as a citizen of uh, Massachusetts ought to be the same as your vote as a citizen from Montana or Pennsylvania. And it's not. It's radically different in the significance and effect. And that's because, not, of, not just because of the Electoral College, which of course is built into the Constitution, the real source of the difference comes from the fact that states allocate their Electoral College votes according to something called winner-take-all. So the winner-take-all principle says the person who gets the most popular votes gets all of the Electoral College votes in that state. And what that does, that system does, is mean that presidential campaigns focus on just 12 battleground states which um, in 2016, those 12 battleground states um, uh, had 99% of campaign spending, ad spending, 95% of campaign candidate time. Um, and four battleground states, Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, had 71% of campaign ad spending. So the candidates are focused on what these small number of states care about. But of course, these states, these battleground states, don't represent America. They are older, they are whiter, their industry is from the 20th or 19th century. Um, I think they should be represented like everybody else, but they should be represented like everybody else. They should be just, you know, one part of America that gets their voice heard. But instead, they are overwhelmingly dominant in the presidential campaigns. And that's just another manifestation about the, uh, of the way in which we don't have a republic that gives all of us uh, equal political uh, or uh, political equality. Um, and so what we've done is we've, started crowdfunding a campaign to support um, a legal case, which says, which will ask the Supreme Court to apply the principle of equality, one person, one vote, to winner take all in the states. Um, you know, that's not saying apply one person, one vote to the Electoral College. That's not touchable given the precedent of the Supreme Court. But the court has not yet considered the question whether one person, one vote as applied to one uh, winner take all violates the Constitution. And the most recent time the Supreme Court's gotten close to this question, uh, the case you might have heard of, Bush v. Gore, where the Supreme Court upheld the principle of equality to force uh, Florida to change the way they were counting votes, um, uh, seems extremely amenable to uh, one person, one vote applying to winner take all as well. So what we want is the Supreme Court to say, look, if you're going to allocate electoral college votes, you've got to do it proportionally. And if we did it proportionally, that would radically change the way presidential campaigns happen because presidential campaigns would be eager to get votes from whatever part of the country, not just in the battleground states. And it also would reduce the probability 
of the person who loses the popular vote becoming the president. Two of the last three elections, the loser of the popular vote became the president. We think the estimate is something like 30 percent going forward will be the losers of the popular vote will become president. Um, So it's not just the 52 million Americans whose vote didn't count in this election because they happened to be in the wrong state. It's also the fact that overall, we're not going to, we're going to see this increase in the number of times minority uh, presidents become presidents. And and that's a real problem for America's democracy. So equalvotes.us is the place where we're raising the funds to to, to be able to file this campaign. The lawyers are going to work for free, but the experts the, um, will make this a very expensive case. And so that's why we've got to raise, um, we're, we're, our target is to raise a quarter of a million dollars by the middle of October to be able to file the case sometime in November. And in a way, I mean, this ties directly into the issue we were just talking about, right? Which is it, it, we, we've, we've self-selected or segregated ourselves physically, right? That there's, there's groups of people that vote one way that live in certain parts of the country and vote, groups of people that vote the other way that lives in, live in other parts. And which is not to say that it's 100% versus zero, but we have done that, that people in metropolitan areas vote more liberal and people in some rural areas vote more conservatively. But at least before we had this common narrative of television or the story that connected us all together and told us what everybody believed. But now in addition to self-segregating physically, we've actually self-segregated digitally. So it's very connected, it seems. It's a, it's the same issue. Yeah. And it's the big struggle. How do we build um, you know, a common uh, United States that can address its common problems in a way that uh, you know, gives fair voice to everybody in the process? And um, you know, there are a lot of issues that I know people legitimately disagree about, and I'd be happy to engage in those fights. You know, single-payer health care, I'm for it. Uh, global warming uh, legislation, I'm for it, absolutely. Dealing with inequality, income inequality, I'm for it. Um, but I understand each of those issues are issues which, you know, fair and reasonable-minded people have different views about it. And so, you know, that's the debate. That's the sc- scope of, like, fair debate in American politics today. We should have no debate on the question whether, as citizens, our votes are equal. There should be no debate about that. And it should be outrageous to people that we have a political system that so radically renders our votes unequal. Um, no other political system in the country, in the world, has an election for a president where they don't count the votes equally. Um, and yet we somehow believe that we are both a great democracy and a democracy that can't count. Um, and those two things don't go together. Uh, and so. What we're trying to do is to say, let's pull together common values, common ground, and, you know, across party lines say, we ought to have a system that respects us equally. And so let's build that, um, even though the framers didn't, in fact, give it to us directly. What do you think your chances of winning this? Are you worried that it's going to be seen because the last two presidents who won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College were Democrats? Are you worried that it'll just be seen as a partisan a partisan attempt to make it easier and more you know, make it easier for Democrats to win in the future? Well, you know, I'm um, I, I'm constitutionally naive and charitable about the Supreme Court. Um, I've been wrong many times, but uh, having worked there for a year, uh, um, I actually think that if this gets to the court, they will think about it in a fair way. And I'm pretty convinced that the argument we're making is right. Uh, and so, you know, that means there's a chance. It's not a, you know, it's not a probability. This is a pretty big change and the court is pretty conservative in a small C sense of conservative. So I'm not saying it's a certain, it's a slam dunk, but um, 
But it is an argument which, you know, has not been considered properly, and I think properly considered um, ought to come out our way. But whether we win in the court or not, the one way in which we certainly will win is by building a campaign of people committed to this idea that our votes should count equally. And if, you know, we build a, um, you know, a list of five million people who are committed to this idea and we lose in the court, then those people, um, you know, can then take their energy and direct it to the political solutions that actually could solve this problem tomorrow. You know, there's a project called the National Popular Vote Initiative, which basically is an agreement among states that they will commit their electoral college votes to the winner of the national popular vote. And once 270 electoral college votes are committed, then they all kick in and they have to commit it to the national popular vote. That would solve the problem that we're talking about overnight if sure. we got 270 states to sign up. The problem is that um, you need to have a bunch of Republican states sign up. Um, and the elite in the Republican Party doesn't want that to happen because the elite wants to basically use the system to guarantee a bias in favor of Republican presidential candidates. Well, the only way to break that, I think, is to begin to make it salient and obvious and undeniable that we ought to have a system of equality for electing our president. And under that system of equality, um, your vote would count as much as mine. And so if we get that as a public recognition and a public view, then there's a chance, I think a stronger chance, to go into states, even Republican states, states like Pennsylvania um, still hasn't passed this, and, and say to them, look, you know, do, do what's right. Do the right thing. Don't, don't rig the system um, because that's the only way you think you can win. Republicans can win whether the system's rigged or not. Right. And so they ought to commit to the principle of equality first and then fight for uh, the victories where all of our votes count equally. I want to wrap up here by talking about something that's tangentially related to all of this and I think circles back into where you really started your career. Um, you know, and that's just the role that automation is going to play in society and in the United States moving forward. And I say tangentially related because to some extent we could say that the people, you know, the people in metropolitan areas or people on the coast, you know, whatever stereotype you want to use, were in many ways very unaware of sort of the attitudes and problems and issues of people in a lot of the rest of the country were going through. And a lot of those, especially around jobs and work, and that was a big message of this past campaign, um, and a lot of that, while, you know, politicians might want to blame it on trade and, and immigrants and all these things, a lot of it really does have to do with technology and innovation and um, big companies needing less employees these days. And if you really look at, you know, the role it's playing in our life today, uh, Facebook computers are guiding us in who we talk to and keep up with, you know, things like Waze and Pokemon Go are having just, you know, effects on our physical presence that are really hard to even comprehend. What do you think the big societal challenges we're going to face as more of life becomes automated and machines become even more intelligent in the next decade or two? And like, again, whose responsibility is it to sort all that stuff out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I completely agree with you. I think that, uh, you know, I grew up in the cent in kind of the heartland. Uh, and as I, you know, watched the support for Donald Trump rise, it, it was, um, you know, the people in my hometown, they all voted for Donald Trump. Um, and they voted for Donald Trump not because they're racist, not because they hate transgendered people. Um, they voted for Donald Trump because they thought only he was talking to them 
about issues that they thought might make it possible for them to survive. Um, now, I think they were wrong about that. I think Hillary Clinton's actual uh, um, platform, not something that the news media talked about much, but her actual platform and what she would have done as president would be a thousand times better for those people than anything Donald Trump has done. Um, but that's what they were motivated by, the sense that they were losing hugely because of the changes that we've seen and not seeing any reaction by the Democratic Party to them that would give them a reason to believe that the Democratic Party would help. And, and these changes, um, you know, I think are, are really beyond our um, recognition right now. I think you're exactly right to talk about the consequence of automation. People are very um, uh, uh, um, sanguine about you know, our ability to adjust. Uh, but this won't be an adjustment. This will be a fundamental change. And I think what we need to do is to begin to, in, to talk about ideas that would reflect just how fundamental a change it would be. So when people are talking about universal basic income, you know, which is basically the government guaranteeing everybody has the essentials they need, like health care and enough to eat, um, um, you know, one of the reasons that's so important is that it, it takes pressure off of this question um, what do we do in a world where um, uh, robots are doing 90% of the work that we need to do? I mean, what we might do is like evolve to a world where we don't actually imagine working 40 hours a week for, you know, 40 years of our life. Uh, you know, that that's the way we, that's the model of the 20th century. But who's to say that was such a great thing anyway? Right. <laughs> you know, a lot of people would like to be able to work 10 hours a week and spend their other time fishing or, you know, doing craft, uh, you know, building carpet, uh, carpent, being a carpenter or, um, you know, uh, writing or, you know, doing all sorts of things. It's, like It's such why a hard is... thing to conceive, I think, because yes. so much of how we determine what our life can look like and have some agency over it is based on that work. Yeah. Right. But part of that, I think, is because we're not 20. Um, right. You know, I think that, That's a good point. you know, if I look at my students and, you know, you think about it, what how they see life the idea of living doing five different things at the same time is natural to them and the idea of like selecting the thing that they want to do that really reflects who they want to be as a person is more obvious to them than i think it is to you know people my generation you know who thought i need to go get a job at crevasse anymore because that's going to be my identity right. um, so i think you know what we've got to be is open to just how fundamental this transformation will be and stay focused on helping those who need our help the most. I mean, I think the most outrageous thing out of the 2008 collapse was if you step back and you say, okay, there was a huge collapse brought about by you know, bad action and lots of inaction, lots of ignorance, lots of sloppiness, and a lot of uh, people doing bad things. A lot of people were hurt. You know, Wall Street bankers were about to lose everything. A lot of people with homes were about to lose everything. But the government, wasn't neutral in responding to that hurt. The government raced in and helped the Wall Street banks. You know, they had all sorts of justifications how we have to save Wall Street because it's going to collapse the whole world economy if we don't save Wall Street, leading to them being able to pay some of the largest bonuses in the history of those companies to the people who were more directly responsible for that collapse than anybody else in the system. So we responded to them and we helped them and they came out not so bad. But when you turn to, you know, Ohio or Western Pennsylvania or Michigan and you say, uh, what happened to the person whose house was uh, 
underwater because of, you know, the mortgage um, refinancing uh, way above what they could possibly afford. The answer is we did almost nothing for those people. And I think that is just morally and politically completely unjustifiable. If we're going to step in and help, we ought to step in and help the people who need the help the most. And, and if we can afford then to help the people that lead the help the least after that, then okay, I'm all for it. I'm not against helping people. Right. But the idea that we didn't care most about the mortgage holders, um, in fact, cared least about the mortgage holders, said that those people, yes, learn to be an adult, learn to be responsible for you know, your own mistakes. But when we came to Wall Street, it's like, oh, guys, you guys gambled with the economy and it lost. It went it's south, always great to we're going to come in and help you. So that is outrageous. And if, so you can when still we think about these transitions, these transitions are going to be costly for all sorts of people. Um, to learn but we need to make sure that they're not, cost, they're not fatally costly for the most vulnerable Research and writing by Michael Sharp And that means really aggressively making sure that these transitions are bearable by those who can bear them the least. Larry Lessig, I want to thank you for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thanks for all of your work through all of these years. We will continue to follow what you do and are so appreciative of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.